This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Voluntary principle states that all human relations should happen by mutual consent or not at all. This podcast aims to promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Everything Voluntary. Be sure to check out and subscribe to the Voluntarist Voices podcast brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Voluntarist Voices is a podcast featuring lectures, interviews, and audio essays by intellectual giants past and present. Uh, before we start the episode, I want to invite you to join me as a featured guest. I'd love to chat and get to know you and give you this platform to bounce your ideas around. To schedule, go to the main website at EverythingVoluntary.com. On the right-hand side, there's a link to schedule with me immediately. Click that link, select a day and time, answer the questions, and submit. That's all it takes. Thank you so much. Hello, welcome to the podcast. It is December 1st, 2020. Here it is, the final stretch of the year. <laughs> In this episode, I'm going to read through this uh, new little article by Pear Byland over at the Mises Institute called Debunking Seven Common Criticisms of Austrian economics. I thought this was really good. I thought it was succinct. And I thought that I'd want to review it and read through it, maybe add a little commentary uh, here on the podcast. Before I do that, I want to mention a couple of things. I listened to a couple of debates recently, and I'll link to these so you can listen to them too. The first one I listened to was a debate between Thaddeus Russell, and Michael Rechtenwald on the Tom Woods podcast. And they were debating postmodernism and whether or not understanding it, using it, applying it, whatever, is good for individual liberty. That was what the debate was about. And in my opinion, I think that Thaddeus Russell won that debate. I think that he accomplished arguing for that uh, conclusion, that postmodernism in general, there have been there have been individual postmodernists that were not um, that went beyond postmodernism and and became not uh, you know hardcore libertarian or anything like that. But what 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 he explained as what postmodernism is and what it does is that it deconstructs meta narratives, particularly meta narratives that uh, create and hold up political power. So. If that's all you knew about what postmodernism is, then it's pretty obvious that uh, doing that, doing postmodernism, deconstructing meta-narratives around political power is what libertarians ought to be doing, right? Because our whole concern is political power, political authority, government, the state. And if it's built up and maintained in the types of powers that it exercises over people, right, the ruling class versus the rest of us. And postmodernism is, first of all, having skepticism that that meta-narrative has any merit, 
And second of all, deconstructing it to show exactly why it's empty of merit. All right. And Rechtenwald's entire issue with postmodernism seems to be that it goes too far. That in being skeptical towards meta narratives and truth claims, that it it applies that towards things that are really true and certain things that are really necessary for society if individual liberty is to be respected. And I don't I don't think that's true. Now, granted, I don't have a lot of experience with the source materials, and Thaddeus Russell did recommend some source ma- materials, mostly by Michel Foucault couple of his books and I'll I'll link to the debate and you can hear his recommendations directly. But then when, you know, towards the end when Rechtenwald is claiming that the postmodernist and of course he groups them all together, which is like which is really like grouping all libertarians together and saying they say this thing, not recognizing that there is there is sort of a core in libertarianism, right? Which I would which I would call self-ownership, private property, not aggression. But I think it's valid to call people who are not anarchists, who are minarchists, who are night watchmen status, who are constitutionalists, for the most part, to hold them within the libertarian camp. So if you're attacking libertarian anarchism by appealing to libertarian, excuse me, libertarian constitutionalists, well, you're creating a bit of a straw man. And I think Rechtenwald does this, but when he does it, he really has a hard time of giving specific quotes and specific, you know, sources about what he's claiming postmodernists are saying about um, things like socialism and whatnot. And he agrees, you know, he, he readily concedes Thad Russell's argument that Marxists hate postmodernists, which I can imagine Marxism seeks to establish its own meta narratives and truth claims. And the postmodernists came along and deconstructed those and showed them to be utter bullshit, I would say. So they would hate them, right? Which, I mean... That's kind of another argument for that. Anyway, I thought I thought Russell won the debate, and it impressed me more with the idea of postmodernism. I think Rechtenwald had some misconceptions, even though Thad readily admitted that of everybody he has spoken with or debated about postmodernism, Rechtenwald is probably the most familiar with it. So anyway, I'll link to that. Um, the second debate I listened to was on this podcast called Modern Day Debates. And I'll link to this. It was uh, David Friedman versus Richard Wolff on, you know, capitalism versus socialism. And I was completely unimpressed by Richard Wolff and all of his argumentation. Every time David Friedman gave any arguments, the best that Richard Wolff Wolf would come back with is, we're living on different planets. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> what you're saying is so foreign to me. <laughs> Supposedly, he's an economics professor at Harvard or whatever, or he was. And David Friedman taught economics. Of course, his father was Milton Friedman. They're both in the economics world. And so he kept, he kept pretending, in my opinion, he kept pretending not to understand David Friedman. And that made him look really, uh, really disingenuous and acting in bad faith. He, what he should have done is, is demonstrated that he understood exactly what David Friedman was talking about and then, you know, explain why he might be wrong. But he never did that. And at the end of the day, his entire argument was that corporations should should be, if they are to be fair to workers, organized on a cooperative model. And he gave a couple of examples of, you know, like there's one in Spain that's been going for 70 years. And, you know, there's been other examples. And David, of course, had examples of ones that failed. 
And David's whole point was, it's not illegal today for companies and corporations to be built on this model, but you don't see it very often. And David Friedman thinks there's reasons for that, market-based reasons. I did like the point. I thought it was an I thought it was a good point made by Wolf where he said, well, that might be true, but the first problem is people who have money, lenders, venture capitalists, they don't they don't tend to want to lend to cooperative models because there's no single person or small group of people that puts any skin in the game. Right? You have a cooperative where you want to share ownership among 30 people. Um, I guess it gets too complicated for them. But that, you know, at the same time, it doesn't stop 30 people who want to start a business from pooling their savings. Like anybody else who wants to start a business or who has started a business, you've got to start with capital. And either you've got to save your own capital or you've got to convince somebody else to loan you some. So it doesn't really matter. The, the, the problem is this. People have a business idea, right? They, it might be a small thing. It might be something they'll tinker around with and then it'll catch on and it'll get really large really fast, you know, something like Facebook. And it's usually a ha- it's usually one person who starts it or a handful. And now you're demanding that they just immediately out of the kindness of their heart share ownership with all of their employees. It's okay if they want to do that. Nobody's going to stop them, right? And maybe they keep it singular at first in order to get funding and then later on they switch to a cooperative model. The whole point that David Friedman was making was that all of these different types of business organizations should be put to the market test. And there was, I've heard um, people like Noam Chomsky and Richard Wolf before talk about one of the core ethical issues they have with the employer-employee relationship is that if a person doesn't work and earn money, then they might starve. Therefore, the employer is able to use that as leverage, therefore making their relationship unequal and therefore making the relationship exploitative and oppressive. But the central problem with this argument is that the employer is not putting the employee in that position. So it's not a very useful way to define coercion because guess what? Everybody in the world is in that situation. If we don't pick up our hands with food in them and put it in our mouth, then we will wither and die, right? If somebody refuses to sell food to us, does that mean they're murdering us, if they refuse to hire us, or they refuse to continue employing us after they've hired us? Are they murdering us? That seems to be the argument, and it's absolute nonsense. All right, I'll link to that debate too. All right, let's uh, let's get into this. Um, so, Pear Byland, this is from November 25th, so about a week ago, and I guess this was um, put together from a Twitter thread. He says, let's clear up some misconceptions about Austrian economics. If people want to dis- dismiss this school of thought, which, may, which many seem inclined to do for political reasons, at least they should do so based on facts and knowledge, not on falsehoods. Here are the corrections. All right, here's the first, um, here's the first claim. Austrian economics is not empirical. That's false. He writes, empirical studies or history are important in Austrian economics and have larger scope than in mainstream economics. Mises worked with applied research in the Vienna Chamber of Commerce and founded the Austrian Institute for Business Cycle Research, for which he appointed Hayek as the first director. This is where Hayek did much of the business cycle research that later won him the Nobel Prize. What critics failed to understand is Austrian's narrow, narrower definition of theory, which is not a collection of hypotheses, but true general statements. Austrian economic theory cannot be developed using incomplete and imprecise measurements of observations. But this does, dump, this does not mean Austrians cannot or will not do empirical research. 
I have, um, I've read a lot of empirical research, historical research by Austrians, right? I mean, you've got the great, you know, uh, America's Great Depression by Rothbard. Um, and I've read others that have gone in and looked at, you've got Panic of 1819. That's also Rothbard. Rothbard has done a lot of this. <laughs> and other people who have come after him have taken it up as well and done it. I mean, look at Pete Leeson, who's also an Austrian. He did the whole Invisible Hook. That's on pirates. That's obviously um, historical research. And there's plenty of others, right? Th theory is really not not changing much in the Austrian camp. Most stuff done. Um, here's another example. Benjamin Powell's Out of Poverty. That's about third world sweatshops. That's another Austrian look at empirical. You know what I mean? I mean, that's that's all they're doing these days. Right, but they don't build Austrian theory on empirical research. Right, Austrian theory is built on irrefutable, true, irrefutably true general statements about human action, and using that, it then gives you, and he'll talk about this here later on. That gives you a lens by which to interpret history. Right, everybody interprets history. Everybody has a lens by which they want to explore the empirical world. Right, which is which is history. All right, the next claim: Austrian economic theory is not related to the real world. This is false. He says Austrians, following Mises, derive true statements from the nature of human action that it is purposeful behavior. For example, actors aim to achieve something they consider both attainable and valuable using the means they recognize as appropriate and effective. Action always takes place in the real world, and it is through our real world experience that we recognize that the nature of action is in fact true. What is logically derived from a true statement about action cannot magically lose its empirical relevance just because it is derived logically rather than, quote, letting the data speak. Austrians hold the typical view of economists since at least Adam Smith that theory cannot be derived from observations. Austrian theory, as traditional classical economic theory, is more like math than empirical physics. Math produces true a priori statements that we use to understand what we observe. That we can calculate partial derivatives but not observe them does not make them less true in and about the real world. It is the same with Austrian economics. So my understanding is that not all Austrians even build their theory from human action, which is praxeology. Praxeology, the study of human action. That's a Misesian Rothbardian trajectory. The Misesian Hayekian does not. Um, I find it convincing, which is why I'm on the, the Misesian Rothbardian uh, track, if you will, uh, mini camp within the larger Austrian camp. But either way, they still, they still do the same thing. They still build theory based on discovering true uh, general statements and, and build from there. One just starts at, you know, the action axiom, which I've written. I like it put this way. The action, the action axiom is a utilization of means over a period of time in order to achieve a desired end. And the desired end is always of the nature of alleviating felt uneasiness around this felt uneasiness felt uneasiness <laughs> about the state of the world around you. Okay, the action axiom is irrefutably true. And we can build on that insight, which is what the Messesians and Rothbardians and, and Ford do starting with Mises. Okay, the next claim. Austrian economic theory cannot explain phenomena in the real world. So it was not empirical, then it was not related to the real world, and now it cannot explain phenomena in the real world. These people just don't get it. 
Um, that's false. Similar to the previous mi- misconception, this statement evaluates Austrian theory using a different definition of theory. Mainstream economics claims to explain more, even specific cases, by adopting a looser and thereby broader definition of theory, which only makes it less reliable. Simply put, mainstream economics cannot make a claim of truth. Austrian economics can, because its theory solely derives from a true axiom, action as purposeful behavior. Nothing beyond what can be derived logically enjoys the status of theory. Austrians make the stronger claim, but stick with narrower boundaries of theory. This does not make the theory unrelated to the real world, but only more reliable. Just like, for example, engineers can use true math to make reliable calculations about real-world projects, Austrians use true economic theory as a framework to uncover the real goings-on in the real economy. All right, now one one interjection here. I spoke earlier when I was talking about the Thad Russell-Rechtenwald debate on postmodernism, that postmodernism seeks to deconstruct meta-narratives and truth claims. And here we have Per Bylan saying that um, mainstream economics cannot make a claim of truth. Austrian economics can, because it, its theory solely derives from a true axiom, action as purposeful behavior. So the postmodernists would approach this and say, okay, I see your truth claim. Let's see if it holds any water. Let's be skeptical about it. So you do the work. And I think you come away, um, I think you come away with, you know, I can't, I can't refute the action axiom without affirming it. <laughs> and I'll link to an article about that. Um, right. So, so just like with mathematical claims, you do the work and you say, this is solid. Let's move on. Right. I don't think the, it's required for the postmodernist to continue to doubt. Right. Maybe you hold in the back of your mind. Okay. For the purposes, for, for my purposes going forward, we'll, we'll treat this as True. This will be our axiom. This will be our premise. Okay. At that point, it doesn't really matter if it's really actually always universally true. Okay. Austrians would say it is. Postmodernists will say, okay, that's fine. We'll operate on that basis. And that's that's the end of postmodernism. Postmodernism is not saying it's not. It's not making its own truth claim about it. So it's healthy. Skepticism is healthy. And if that's what postmodernism is, then I'm a postmodernist. All right, the next uh, criticism. Austrian economics cannot explain why people act. He says this is false. The action axiom states exactly why people act. They aim to attain something they personally value, seeking to change their present situation for one anticipated to be better. But it is true that Austrians do not attempt to explain the mental processes that make a person value one thing over another. That's not the role of the economist, however. Being logicians, Austrians use very stringent and clear definitions and distinctions. They clearly distinguish between the realms of economics and psychology, the former being the study of action and its effects, and the latter the study of the motivations for behavior. Similarly, within economics, Austrians distinguish between theory, which is a priori and true, and history, which is a study of empirical data through the lens of theory. It is unfortunate that other schools of thought are comparatively sloppy in their definitions and distinctions, which makes them much less reliable, less scholarly, and so less scientific. Okay, the next criticism. There is no way of telling if Austrian economic theory is accurate. He says that's false. If this were the case, then there would also be no way of telling if statements of logic, math, geometry, etc. are true. That's clearly not the case. The statements, this statement makes the error of assuming economic theory is inductive and empirical, which is not true for the Austrian school, and wasn't true of economics until well into the 20th century. Economics was, and properly is, a deductive science. I like that. I really like that. Here's the next uh, claim. Austrian economics is an idiosyncratic take 
on economics. He says this is false. Austrian economics continues the economic reasoning tradition from classical economics, but adds the marginalist analysis and value subjectivity of Karl Menger. It is modern economics that breaks with the discipline's roots in deductive social theorizing by its physics envy, mathematizing, straying into the realm of psychology and aiming for efficient social engineering through policy rather than for understanding the market economy. And this is, this is my commentary. This is precisely why econ- Austrian economics is not mainstream. It's not popular. It's because it doesn't aim for efficient social engineering through policy, right? And if it doesn't aim for efficient social engineering through policy, through politics, then politicians who um, want to impress their constituencies with claims and promises in order to get and stay elected have really no use for Austrian economics. Okay, all the other economics can say, you know, you do this, you do this, then, you know, we're going to build this and this and that. And whether or not it's bullshit doesn't really concern the politician. It doesn't really concern the, 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 the people that make up the, institution of, the institutions of government. All they need is some sort of reasoning that they can pull over on their constituents and they'll get elected and they'll stay elected. And that's, that's the entire goal of these people. Okay, they're, they're typically not principled. They're typically not trying to do the right thing, trying to do justice, trying to, do, uh, trying to make the world a better place. They're typically just people who want power, in my opinion, my opinion. And so they'll, they'll do and they'll say whatever they need to unscrupulously to get in that position, to stay in that position, and to rise as far as they can. And then when it's convenient, they'll deny, they'll flip-flop, they'll you know, do a 180, they'll do a 180 again, they'll do whatever they need to do to, to maintain power. So the Austrian school isn't useful for those ends, and so it's not means. And therefore, it's not popular. It's not popular for politicians. Therefore, it's not popular for the media that, um, you know, are in bed with the state. Okay, here's the final one. Austrian economics is ideological. This is the criticism. He says, false. This is the most ridiculous and ignorant of the misconceptions. Note how Austrian economic theory is a priori deductive and based in logic. There is no room for ideology. In fact, this makes Austrian economics much less ideological than the schools of economic thought that rely on empirical analysis for theorizing. Since such analysis necessarily includes a large degree of interpretation, so the theorist's personal view can easily and often does enter, what this critique means is that the critic has an ideological or emotional resentment of free markets, typically asserting that markets don't work. Austrians don't make such normative statements, but only explain by uncovering how markets work, free, interventionist, and centrally planned. The value judgment of what is better is not part of theory, but Austrians can expertly point out whether a means is appropriate for the stated end. Also, Austrians popularly, properly, excuse me, theorize on the free market first, that is, unhampered interaction, to then uncover the impact of specific influences, such as regulations, changes in preferences, etc. You cannot understand how an influence changes things unless you first understand how the economy works without it. Right, You've got to understand the default state, the void state, and then you start putting stuff in, you go from there. I like that. So that's it for this, and I'll link to this. It's a pretty good resource, I think. I discovered Austrian economics after I got really interested in economics. 
through the work of Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams and Milton Friedman. And I've been stuck there ever since. <laughs> um, I think it's great. I think it's incredibly useful. I think it has incredible explanatory power about all sorts of things. I do consider myself part of the praxeology, like I said, the praxeologist uh, Mises Rothbard track of Austrian economics rather than the Hayekian. But there's there's value on all over Austrian economics for sure. And I find value from other economists. I really like David Friedman. I think he explains a lot of things really well. I like his take on anarcho-capitalism. I really like Brian Kaplan. Um, I think he does a really good job explaining things, and he digs into a lot of interesting subjects that other people aren't really talking about. Um, he's written some very interesting books on that, on voting, on education, on immigration, um, and even on um, having more kids. <laughs> I haven't read that one. Um, so those are probably my two favorite non-Austrians. Um, but otherwise, there's just been a, a, a lot, you know, just a ton. I guess my favorite Hayekians would be um, Donald Boudreau and Russ Roberts over there. Cafe Hayek. Um, trying to remember some others. I really like Don Donald Boudreau. He was he was the president of the Foundation for Economic Education when I first started subscribing to the Freeman magazine, you know, fifteen years ago or whatever it was. And so I would read his I would read his um as the president I would read his, among others, but always his um article. And then I'd follow Cafe Hayek and he he has these, I don't know if he's still doing it because I haven't really followed him for a while, but he, he had these really brilliant um, letters to the editor, right, to, to you know, correcting some economics mistake in some newspaper somewhere from the country, you know. They were always, they were always brilliant. I actually, um, early on in my uh, religious um, career, so he called his letters to the editor, he called it Market Correction. It was actually on its own blog called Market Correction. And so I started a blog called Mormon Correction, where anybody who would say, you know, give some misconceptions about Mormonism, I would write a similar. I never actually sent it, sent, sent, sent them into the newspapers. I would just post them on my blog, this, the similar type of letters to the editor correcting the misconception. Um, and I called that Mormon Correction. You know, let me go to Blogger. Let me pull up my list of old blogs. I must have deleted it. It's not there. Yeah, I think I did. Because for now, I've just got my old faith blog, my old truth blog, personal journals I started. <laughs> I don't add to those. Those are private blogs and large print liberty. Anyway, that was kind of interesting. So I've, I've definitely been influenced. Um, he's probably my favorite. And it's funny because I got him. I got him on Facebook to say that he considers um, Milton Friedman to be a, what was it? Let me look it up. Oh, he, um, I, I originally said, if it's Friedman versus Rothbard, I'll take Rothbard. And I, I linked to some Gary North, who I'm not really a fan of, some Gary North post about the ghost of Murray Rothbard uh, haunting the economist. And Donald Boudreau, he says, gosh, he replied to that because I I'd put that, I guess I put that on his wall on Facebook. He said, Gosh almighty, not me. Rothbard wasn't one one-hundredth the economist that Friedman was. <laughs> and so I actually um, I actually sent that to like Lou Rockwell and Bob Murphy. I don't know why. Just trying to, just trying to stir up shit, I guess, between them. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. But uh, anyway, I really like him, Donald Boudreaux. I published 
an essay of his in my first book, Everything Voluntary. Really good essay on coercivist versus voluntarist. I thought that was a good fit. All right. So that's uh, seven – that's Per Bylan debunking seven common criticisms of Austrian economics. So, you know, it's my favorite school of economics. There's certainly value in the others. Um, you know, if David Friedman or Brian Kaplan are writing or talking, I, I certainly pay attention. Uh, Don Boudreau as well, of course. Um, all right. That will do it. Please remember, don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff. Don't ask permission. Thank you so much for listening and have a better day. Please send your comments and questions to everythingvoluntary at gmail.com. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by setting up an automatic monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash EBC. One-time donations are also accepted at paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Will you do us a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends. We really appreciate it.